Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hey everyone, welcome back to Medicus Podcast. This is Jackie, a rising M2 here at Loyola Stritch. Today I am interviewing my classmate, Michael Terranova, who, aside from being our class's Anki expert and designated neuroanatomy tutor, is an experienced prion disease researcher. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Jackie. Thanks for having me. It's, it's nice to be doing this podcast in person this time. Yes, we just spent a few hours working out the kinks of all the equipment, so it's very exciting. So can you tell us about yourself? Sure. So I, I want to clarify that I did uh, work with prion disease patients, but I'm not a doctor yet, uh, although I did earn my master's degree studying neuroscience, and I spent two years as the uh, lead clinical research coordinator for UC San Francisco's prion disease research study. I left that study in uh, 2021 to attend medical school with Jackie, but that study is still ongoing, and I encourage all affected uh, patients and families to reach out to Dr. Michael Geshwind at UC San Francisco if they are interested in participating. I should also add that everything I share today should not be taken as medical advice, nor does it represent the opinions of UC San Francisco or any of the groups or other researchers we might talk about. My experiences come from working at only one research facility, and I wanted to do this podcast to raise awareness of the prion diseases uh, after spending a couple of years working with 50 or so patients who had these conditions. All right, so big question, what is a prion? Uh, you know, it's a really important question and one a lot of people don't actually have the answer to. I'm happy I get the chance to share it. Prions are simply a type of protein made by cells in your body. If we think back to the central dogma of biology, we have DNA being transcribed to RNA and RNA being translated to protein. Now, we know that the PRNP gene codes for the prion protein, and this protein is found in neurons across the nervous system. Where it gets really interesting is that the normal functional prion protein can take on a different shape. And prions in this misfolded shape stick together and they accumulate in the cells where they were made, ultimately destroying that cell. And once that happens, those misfolded prion proteins are free to spread across the nervous system. They stick to other misfolded prions in other cells and they destroy more neurons, especially in the brain. And it's this destruction of neurons across the brain that causes the symptoms that we see in uh, prion diseases. So in simplistic terms, a prion is like a protein that goes bad. It's in the wrong shape. It can cause other proteins to also be in the wrong shape, which can then lead to cellular damage. That is correct, yeah. I could see why this is bad, but can you elaborate on why this is so dangerous? Yeah, so, so prions and prion disease are very dangerous, um, but it's actually the misfolded form of those prion proteins that are dangerous, and they are dangerous for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that these misfolded prion proteins are extremely stable, and it takes extreme heat, like 250 degrees Fahrenheit, and very strong chemicals to denature and, and destroy these proteins. Basically, the conditions that would destroy a misfolded prion protein would also destroy all the other proteins in a living organism, and that means that we can't currently treat people who have misfolded prions in their, in their brains. And since there's no treatment, Prion diseases are always fatal, and usually patients pass away within um, 12 months of being diagnosed with a prion disease. It's not 
the same thing, obviously, but it kind of reminds me of cancer and that cancer is cells that have, quote unquote, gone wrong. It's hard to treat cancer because you don't want to affect the normal cells. So like kind of with this, you can't really effectively treat prion proteins because you don't want to damage the normal proteins. Exactly. And there's there's a lot of issues with actually getting treatments into the brain because of the blood-brain barrier. And crossing the blood-brain barrier is only the first hurdle because once you do, then you need to target the affected cells or you need to find a way to, you know, inhibit the the misfolded prions that are floating around in the cerebrospinal fluid and, and causing that damage. What are the ways people can get prion diseases? So the, the ways that you want to know about are transmission risk uh, with contaminated tissue or even contaminated like brain surgery equipment are some of the ways that's happened. There's also uh, genetic prion diseases, and that's where someone has a, a mutation in their PRNP gene, and they make a, a prion protein that is unstable compared to the wild-type form of that protein. And uh, these unstable prion proteins, these mutated prion proteins, are more likely to aggregate together and form these damaging structures within the nervous system. And there's dozens of different types of, of mutations and more being discovered every year. So each one has a slightly different risks and age of onset, but the genetic prion diseases are, are what I actually mainly studied when I was at UC San Francisco. And then the last way is sporadic prion disease. And, and we term these cases sporadic prion disease when there is no genetic mutation and when the person in question has no history of a transmission risk, you know, no blood transfusion from someone with a prion disease no history of brain surgery, for example. And those sporadic cases make up about 90% or so of, of the cases that are currently seen in the world. The other 10% are genetic prion disease cases. And the, the transmission of prions really doesn't happen anymore because of modern policies regarding screening and diagnosis and decontamination. So thankfully, the prion transmission risk is not a big concern in 2022. For the cases that are genetic, the 10%, I'm assuming those would be inheritable? Yes. So the genetic prion diseases are inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion. Autosomal dominant would be the Mendelian genetics. You can map it out using a Punnett square. And those uh, inherited prion diseases, they're pretty well categorized by experts in the field. You know, we can understand if someone has a very specific mutation, there's an understanding of what cohort that mutation belongs to, where those people's ancestors came from, and other people with that same ancestry will have identical mutation with a similar uh, clinical presentation. So if someone is coming to a clinician with a specific mutation, we can look at the rest of the people from that mutation cohort and give them and their family a pretty good idea of what's happening and work with a genetic counselor on specific concerns that they might have. Interesting. What diseases do prions cause? That's a great question. Uh, first, I want to say that you know prion diseases are very rare. There's about 400 cases per year in the United States, so let's keep that in mind when we discuss them. And I use the term prion disease because it's intentionally very broad. It includes the, the three main clinical presentations uh, seen in patients with misfolded prion proteins in their brain, and these are Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, CJD, fatal familial insomnia, FFI, and gerstmann straussler schenker disease, which is abbreviated GSS. Out of all the prion diseases, about 90% are Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, CJD, 
And patients with CJD typically have a rapidly progressing memory loss and they lose the ability to control their muscles. I've heard CJD described as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease at the same time and in fast forward. And I think that's a pretty accurate way of describing what it looks like to outsiders who are maybe caring for these uh, afflicted individuals. Now, CJD can be genetic, it can be transmitted, and it can be sporadic. Now, individuals with a family history of CJD can have genetic testing performed through UC San Francisco's prion disease study or through the Case Western Reserve Prion Center. And anyone who gets genetic testing done should also speak with a genetic counselor. The CJD due to prion transmission, like I said, is, is almost non-existent in 2022 because of the uh, modern policies. But we need to continually fund these efforts to keep our global population safe. Sporadic CJD is the most common prion disease. And uh, like I said, we classify those when there's no known mutation or transmission risk. The other prion diseases are genetic, the fatal familial insomnia and GSS. So I'll start with uh, fatal familial insomnia. This is also an exceptionally rare disease, but rarer than CJD. There's maybe one case per year in the United States. And as the name suggests, uh, this is caused by a gene mutation and it presents with insomnia and then dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. And that's control of blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, and then later on uh, followed by memory problems and loss of motor control. FFI also progresses very quickly like CJD. Uh, normally patients with FFI survive about 18 months from, from the time that they're diagnosed. And again, Genetic testing should be performed uh, for these uh, suspected cases, and that can be done at UC San Francisco or through the Case Western Reserve Prion Center. And then the last one, GSS, uh, gershman strassler schenker disease, exclusively genetic, like I said, but it has a longer duration than the other prion diseases, anywhere from 2 to 10 years, depending on the mutation and, and the health of the individual. And symptoms generally include problems coordinating their balance and their speech, and then it progresses to Parkinsonism and memory problems later on in the disease course. GSS, this is a tricky one to diagnose because it's not fast like the other prion diseases, uh, but it's also incredibly rare like FFI. So physicians don't necessarily think to, to look for it, but physicians who suspect GSS, they have to know what they're looking for. And they have to know which labs are capable of performing the genetic testing required to evaluate the PRNP gene and look for all the different types of mutations that can cause GSS. That's so interesting that CJD and FFI are so quick. Once symptoms start, it's a very rapid progression of the disease, correct? Yeah, very, very quick. Which is interesting for neurological diseases. I feel like we usually think of them taking years. Yes, and and part of this is, like I said, this is, you know, for CJD, 12 months of survival after diagnosis. We kind of suspect that we just don't have the right diagnostic tools to tell when these prions are misfolding and when, you know, when other, um, let's say, markers of change are happening inside the body. These might not be clinically noticeable. You might not notice someone having memory problems before 12 months, but there might be some marker of change on a brain MRI or in the blood or in the spinal fluid. Uh, and that's actually what Dr. Geshwin's research at UC San Francisco was focused on. It was early diagnosis of prion diseases so that we can have a better understanding of when these diseases start and 
that way when treatments are available, we can give medication at that time point instead of waiting to a point where someone has lost you know, the ability to live independently or, or live a, a life with a, a high quality of enjoyment. So let's take CJD, for example, just because it's the most common prion disease. What is the diagnostic process like? So it depends on where you are in the world. There are different diagnostic criteria that are used. The WHO, World Health Organization, has their own diagnostic criteria. And uh, if you're at UC San Francisco with Dr. Geshwin, he has a specific criteria that he's developed, which has been adopted by other uh, professionals as well. In the United States anyway, typically patients would have to rule out any other causes of a rapidly progressive dementia. And that can be things like autoimmune diseases that cause brain swelling or inflammation in the brain that can also cause a rapidly progressive dementia or, or change. And then once those other diseases are ruled out, then you want to rule in prion disease and you would do that by doing a brain MRI. There are some characteristic findings later in the disease course that, that lets you confirm that's what the disease is. Uh, you can also do a lumbar puncture and you can look at proteins in the spinal fluid including uh, prions and when concentrations are high enough in the spinal fluid to detect them. There's also the possibility of doing a biopsy. Now, this is not done in the United States and it's probably not done anywhere in the world because of uh, the cerebrospinal fluid test that's available as of uh, around 2015. But before then, some people were having um, brain biopsies to actually look for prions. And then if someone passes away before a diagnosis can be made, an autopsy can can be done and they can take a look at um, the, the brain pathology and see if this was a prion disease or not. I don't think we are allowed to do an entire episode on prion diseases without talking about mad cow. For me personally, I've heard about this disease my whole life. My parents were in England in the 1980s and to this day, they are not allowed to donate blood. <laughs> Yeah, mad cow disease, that's the one that, that everyone knows. It's, it's kind of the, the most um, familiar to the lay, lay people because of an outbreak that happened in the United Kingdom where your parents were and when your parents were there. So it's definitely worth talking about. I should start by saying that, you know, cows are mammals just like humans and cows naturally make the prion protein in their bodies. This means that cows can develop prion disease and Prion disease is called bovine spongiform encephalopathy, but it's more commonly known as mad cow disease. And mad cow disease affects cows, similarly to how prion disease affects humans. It's a neurological condition. It causes the cows to change their behavior, lose control of their muscles, and they ultimately waste away. Up until the 1980s, it was common for the United Kingdom's agricultural industry to take a deceased cow and use them in something called meat and bone meal, which was fed to cattle. So the situation was that cows with mad cow disease, cows with prion disease, were being fed to other cows, and then those cows developed mad cow disease. Because the prion proteins were still transmissible through the cows eating other cows. Exactly, yeah. So this cow cannibalism. Cowbalism. Uh, you know, you know, even though these cows were dead, they uh, they had the prion proteins in their their tissue, and then when other cows consumed them, they they developed prion disease themselves. And and this wasn't just a few cows that had mad cow disease. This was almost two hundred thousand cows that are known to have bovine spongiform encephalopathy in England alone. 
And we have no idea how many of these prion-contaminated cattle were consumed by humans before the outbreak was identified, and dead cows stopped being used in cattle feed. So just to recap, a cow has prion disease, cow gets fed to other cow, that cow develops prion disease, and then I'm assuming humans ate those cows? Yes, that's in the cases that we've been able to track, that is what has happened. So mad cow disease actually got into the human population? Yeah, so the misfolded cow prions can cross what's called the, the species barrier. You know, the, these prions, they pass to humans. And if a human consumes a meat product from an infected cow, the human can get prion disease. And when a human develops prion disease from exposure to a non-human mammal prion, like prion from a cow or from a sheep, that condition is called variant CJD. So still Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, it's just variant CJD. Uh, and there are over 230 reported cases of variant CJD in humans. And, uh, you know, every one of those poor people died. Like we talked about, most of these cases were in the United Kingdom, and these were occurring in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And those are the cases that made international news, which is why so many people have heard of mad cow disease even today. Is it still an issue today? Mad cow disease is not an issue today. And I'm going to repeat that. Mad cow disease is not an issue today. Farmers and scientists, they know how to screen cows for bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And cow products are no longer used in making cattle feed at all. Now, right now, there is about one case of a cow with prion disease every couple years in the United States, but those cows aren't used for anything. That's just uh, a cow is old, it develops a prion disease just like a human might develop a prion disease, and farmer scientists will do tests to, to confirm that there, you know, there's suspicion that this is a cow with a prion disease, and then that cow is is uh, handled and and all the products from that cow are decontaminated in accordance with prion disposal guidelines. But you know the legacy of the 1980s mad cow disease outbreak lives on. Like we've talked about, many many countries have policies about who can donate blood based on where they lived during that outbreak. For the past 25 years, the United States Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, uh, they recommended that people who lived in the United Kingdom from 1980 to 1996 should not donate blood. Recently, the FDA actually updated that uh, recommendation when the COVID pandemic started because there was a shortage of uh, blood for transfusions. And, you know, we're, we're recording this in 2022. And as of 2022, the FDA still permits people who lived in the UK from uh, 1980 to 1996 to donate blood, even if they were working on, you know, American military bases, um, like, like your folks were. Now, that's not to say that every institution that uh, manages blood transfusions will allow people who, who lived in the United Kingdom in this time to donate blood. That's at the discretion of those transfusion collection institutions. So uh, I checked the American Red Cross website before this, uh, this podcast, and their guidelines as of 2022 still say that they are not allowing donations from people who lived in the UK from, from 1980 to 1996. It might be something where they, they update that in the future, but there's other places to donate blood, but you'd have to check at those uh, individual institutions' guidelines before trying to donate. Interesting. So when did you get involved with prion disease research? I started doing prion disease research after I completed my uh, master's degree in 2019. I worked at the UC San Francisco Memory and Aging Center for two years before starting medical school in the fall of 2021 with you. What was your role in that prion disease research? 
So I was hired as the uh, the lead clinical research coordinator for UC San Francisco's rapidly progressive dementia study. This study focused on improving the diagnostic techniques used for rapidly progressive dementias, like those seen in, uh, in prion diseases or autoimmune diseases in the brain. And in this role, I was the point of contact for the study. I was enrolling participants. I managed all the study data. I was administering the neurocognitive exams to participants. I ran the MRI machines when the participants were getting their brains scanned. I was assisting the neurologists who performed the lumbar punctures. I also worked with the university's IRV when we updated our study protocols when the pandemic began. I helped write NIH progress reports and grants, and I contributed to a couple of uh, journal articles on palliative care for patients with prion disease. Wow. So you had a wide range of responsibilities. There was a lot going on. How did your education, your undergrad, and your master's prepare you to be in that clinical coordinator position? Uh, my formal education is a, a bachelor's degree in human biology and a master's degree in neuroscience. And I drew a lot more from my graduate school laboratory work than I did from undergrad. That's probably because of the specific role and the diseases I worked with. You know, there isn't a lot of education about prions in undergrad or grad school or even medical school. But, you know, if you know how DNA gets turned into RNA and how that gets turned into proteins, then you can understand how, how prions are made. And all the genetic prion diseases that we talked about, they're autosomal dominant. So if you took an introductory genetics class in college, you should be able to understand the, the risks with uh, genetic prion disease. But what was actually more important than my classwork was the leadership and work experience I had when I was in college. I did event planning um, in my university's residence life office and for my fraternity, and that really helped me understand all the, the logistics and the moving parts to consider when hosting a family and, and patients uh, at the research clinic at UC San Francisco. And that included, you know, the scheduling, communication, the setup, escorting people around, um, cleaning up after uh, after the uh, the research visit was over, and then using the things that I learned from that visit to improve uh, the next ones. And then, like I said, when I was in graduate school working on my master's thesis, that was that was in a wet lab with animals, and I was also doing a lot of basic science and learning how to work with career scientists. So understanding the expectations in, in a setting like that, um, and the expectations for getting good data and for how to run a lab, that really um, helped me hit the ground running when I started working with uh, Dr. Geshwin's team at UC San Francisco. I think it's really interesting how, how much direct contact and how much you directly worked with these families and literally coordinating their, you know, they came from all over the country and coordinating their visits in San Francisco all the different tests that they needed to run. I feel like that's must have been one, a logistical challenge, and two, an emotional challenge of, you know, comforting and working with people who have a fatal disease. Yeah, yeah. It was it was very emotionally taxing because, you know, everything you're doing is urgent, right? These are these are rapidly progressing conditions. So every patient, every family member, every doctor, they're they're all looking for answers and they all need it immediately. And you know, I was I was scheduling visits with people not just from the country, but um, from around the world. At least before uh, COVID pandemic began. But if there was a new patient in the hospital or in the clinic and they wanted to join the study, you know, I dropped whatever I was doing and I would I would go meet with them and their families that day. If I got a phone call from a patient's family 
I needed to address those concerns and finish whatever I was working on later. It was very fast paced and it was 100% uh, multitasking. But I could go home every day knowing that I'd helped someone somewhere in the world. And that was, that was a good feeling that did make it all uh, very rewarding work to do. Was there anything else that surprised you about working in prion disease? You know, there's a, there's a mystique with prions because they're so rare, because they are transmissible, and they are genetic, and they are sporadic, and they're so unlike any other condition like, um, like a viral condition or, or diseases caused by uh, bacteria or fungi. Um, and they're so, they're so tricky to work with because you have to decontaminate everything. So there's just, they just seem so foreign compared to everything else. But really, prion disease is caused by misfolded proteins sticking together. And now scientists know that this happens in many other neurodegenerative uh, conditions. For example, in Alzheimer's disease, there's a protein called beta amyloid. And that forms uh, what are called plaques and tangles. And those directly destroy neurons in the brain. Uh, there's another disease people might have heard of called Lewy body dementia, and the Lewy bodies themselves are also aggregates of misfolded protein that damage the brain. And what this was telling us, and what I was uh, happily surprised to hear, was that there's some similarity between all these conditions. And if a scientist can figure out how to treat one of these conditions, well, then maybe that treatment can be adapted for use in treating all of them, including prion diseases. As of now, this recording in July of 2022, is treatment of prion diseases possible or is it more about comfort and prolonging life? Yeah, so as of the date of this recording, uh, unfortunately, there are no treatments for, for prion disease. Um, but there, there is a lot of hope and interest in developing a treatment, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, I know there's a group in the United Kingdom that was using an antibody drug to target uh, and destroy prions, although the last uh, update I heard from them is that the drug was not effective in the six patients that had received the drug. I imagine this group is probably looking for ways to improve the antibody or the drug and, uh, and the way that they deliver it to these patients, probably also looking for more patients because six is a pretty small sample size to use. Again, contrasting this with cancer, where it's one in three people, if you have a very small population size, I'm sure it's hard to do clinical experiments or clinical trials with this. It's hard to get funding. It's hard to get enough patients. And like we talked about, it's hard to diagnose patients in the first place, let alone get them through the screening process of a clinical trial in a timely manner when they can then participate uh, at, at the level that the people running the trial want of their participants. And that includes, you know, what the disease is this rare, how are you even getting people to the, the study sites? There's a lot that goes into it that right now we don't have the answers for, but hopefully with more funding and more time, we will. Yeah. And with, you know, as of now, like CJD having what, 12 months after diagnosis? Yeah, 12. That's a hard, that's a hard very fast clinical trial. It would be hard to do. It would take a long time, I think, to get enough people enrolled in a trial to have enough power to conclusively say if a treatment is working or not. But there is a biotech company called Ionis Pharmaceuticals that publicly stated that they were looking to do treatment trials, and specifically treatment trials for genetic prion disease. It sounds like their plan is to create some sort of genetic drug that stops the body from making prions. And if that works. I hope it might be effective against other types of prion disease. And this is, you know, this is something that I've not been able to keep up with as much since I've started medical school. But for anyone listening who is interested in develop, 
in the development of uh, potential prion disease treatments, I highly recommend visiting cureffi.org. That's C-U-R-E-F-F-I dot O-R-G. And that's a scientific blog run by Dr. Eric Minical. He's a, a prion expert, and he breaks down and explains the results of, uh, of each new treatment trial in layman's terms. And Jack, you also asked about if there's treatments that we use for prolonging life. And at this point, there are no treatments that prolong life, but there are medications that are used in hospice settings to improve the quality of life. That might be a pain medication or sleeping medication, but the use of these drugs, the prescription of these drugs, would be to address symptoms of the disease, not cure the disease or prolong life. You mentioned this earlier, and we've talked about how fast these diseases are. It's just hard for me to conceptualize, I guess, like a neurological disorder acting this quickly. Can you describe it more? It's horrific because these diseases can be extraordinarily quick. I would talk uh, with families and they would say that their loved ones lose some independence every single day. And it would be noticeable day to day. You know, it could be uh, losing the ability to recognize where they are one day and then the next day they can't control their bladder and then the day after that they can't feed themselves. My patients would go from walking to being dependent on a wheelchair within a week. Again, in these cases that I worked with, you know, once patients lost the ability to, to do these activities, they were never able to recover and be able to do them again and they're losing all of their abilities at once. It's typically not just one, you know, area like motor skills. It's typically everything all at the same time. That sounds absolutely awful. I can't imagine how terrifying that must be for not just the patient, but for their families and friends as well. Yeah, it's, it's horrifying. It's horrifying for the families and for the caregivers and, and for the medical providers who, you know, largely powerless to help them. The families, they would tell me that caring for someone with Prion disease is the hardest thing they've ever done in their lives, and I completely believe them. Nothing can prepare you for that, especially if, if it's a genetic family. I've been privileged to talk to hundreds of people from the genetic families, and they deal with so much, right? They might be caring for a sick parent while worrying about themselves, their siblings, and their children. And these, the genetic prion diseases in particular, it consumes someone's life, you know, and every time they forget their keys, they might break down because they think that their symptoms are starting. This is an unimaginable burden for anyone to carry. I want people who might be facing situations like this to know that they're not alone. There are many support groups for prion disease, with the biggest being the CJD Foundation in the United States. When I was working at UCSF, I encouraged every single patient with prion disease to work with the CJD Foundation. I've also heard great things about the Canadian CJD Association the CJD Support Group Network in Australia, and the CJD Support Network in the United Kingdom. And there's others in, in other countries that might have resources in, in other languages uh, besides English as well. We talked earlier about transmissibility of prions. Was that a concern for you and your colleagues? Yes. Yeah. The risk of prion transmission, I mean, that's very real and the consequences are always lethal um, for, for the people working with prions, whether that's in a wet lab, just working with the proteins themselves or working with the patients who might have uh, prions in their body. Prion researchers take transmission risks very seriously. And that's from the moment a prion-containing specimen is collected in the clinic 
to the moment it is destroyed in accordance with the prion disposal guidelines. In the United States, anyway, analyzing prion-containing specimens requires a biosafety level 3 lab and dedicated equipment to prevent contamination, so every step in processing these specimens need to be well-controlled and well-funded. And, you know, if, if someone has prion disease, the prions are inside their body, but there's actually not a risk of transmission if you're breathing the same air as this person or touching their skin. There is no risk of transmission. There's no, yeah, no risk of transmission with skin-to-skin contact. And that's true for the transmissible forms of prion disease, for the sporadic forms, for the genetic forms. And our team would actually counsel patients' sexual partners and let them know that there is no evidence that prions can be transmitted sexually, but we still recommend the use of condoms just to be safe. And I think that's important for people from genetic families to know because people who come from a genetic family and who have the mutation, they can live a full life with a mutation, never develop symptoms, and pass away from something else completely unrelated. But getting back to transmission risks, you know, uh, we know that prions are in the brain, and we know that in the nervous system, that that includes uh, the eyes and the cerebrospinal fluid as well. And one of the best ways to diagnose prion disease is by taking a, a sample of cerebrospinal fluid and seeing if it contains prions. The, the procedure to do that is called a lumbar puncture. It's also known as a, a spinal tap, although we're moving away from that term. And it involves sticking a really thin needle between the vertebrae in someone's back and collecting spinal fluid from the subarachnoid space. The amount of fluid we collect is minimal. It gets regenerated within about an hour. But we treat that fluid and all the equipment that we use to collect it like it contains prions, even if we're, you know, if this is a case where the diagnosis hasn't been made yet. And because we're treating everything like it has prions, we're also setting up the room to be completely protected. That includes setting up waterproof boundaries around the patient. Everyone in the room wears surgical gowns, disposable masks, disposable goggles, multi-layers of, of sterile gloves. And then when we're done, we take all that stuff down and we triple bag it in uh, hazardous waste disposal bags. And then we have the entire bag incinerated. And I was assisting our neurologist with that process every week for every single patient at every single visit. And that was happening up to three times per week. It was just a, the normal way that we did things was set it up, do the procedure, package it all up very carefully, and then incinerate it just to, to eliminate any risk of transmission to ourselves to other people who might be using that space later on, and to make sure that no one was using that equipment ever again. The caution that you have to use in these situations is because of the hardiness of the prions, correct? Correct, yeah. So so they are transmissible through nervous system tissue, and we know that they're transmissible through ingestion if you're eating contaminated meat, for example, from a cow. But they can also reside on surfaces, and they can stay on surfaces like on a table or on a countertop or on a floor, uh, and they're not going to break down because they are so stable. And like I mentioned, they require very high heat, very strong chemicals to, to break them down, but they're also impossible to see with the naked eye or even under a microscope. So you need to treat everything like it's contaminated and incinerate it so that there's no risk to anyone else. Does that include surgical instruments? Uh, very good question. It does include surgical instruments, and we would think that this would more likely be the case of like a brain surgery 
because you might have that same equipment being used for multiple procedures, but of course it's being decontaminated each time. The CDC has guidelines for decontaminating equipment. Uh, I don't know them off the top of my head. I was never part of the actual decontamination process, but it does involve very high heat in an autoclave using very strong chemicals, and then I think a second round of autoclaving, and you would want to have your surgical equipment with serial numbers so you can track when it was cleaned, when it was used, and then if there's ever an outbreak, you can say, well, these patients had this equipment based on the serial number, and then you can see if there was any other patients who had the same equipment after that procedure and see if there's any risk of transmission in those people. Very serious stuff. Requires a lot of money to do it properly, but needs to be done properly every single time. And just to reiterate, you cannot transmit prion disease through skin, breathing the same air, saliva? There is no evidence to support that right now. I know that's that's something that prion disease researchers are working on as of 2022. But again, funding for this type of work is elusive because it's so rare. And getting this information is also pretty hard because you have to have enough people at the same site to have enough power in your study to really conclusively say that there are prions in a bodily fluid or not. I know at UC San Francisco, Dr. Geshwin's team found that there was prions in the eyes of patients with sporadic Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, but I don't know if there's enough data on the genetic prion diseases to say if this is also the case in the genetic prion disease patients, or if those patients with the genetic mutations have prions in their eyes before symptoms of the disease begin. That's research that would be interesting to do if the money is available to do it and there's enough interest in the scientific community to make it happen. So something that I think is really interesting that you've mentioned to me before is for families with genetic prion disease or a genetic predisposition to prion disease, members of the family can get tested to see if they actually have the mutation. So they will get the testing results and find out essentially if they will at some point develop symptoms of a prion disease? Uh, Not necessarily. Um, They'll find out if they carry the mutation, but carrying the mutation doesn't mean that someone will develop prion disease. Uh, I like the word that you used, which was predisposition. There are some mutations where there's less of a chance of developing prion disease, and there's some mutations where there's a higher chance of developing prion disease. Um, And that's why I mentioned earlier in this podcast is once we know what the mutation is, we can look at the statistics for that mutation cohort because the same gene is mutated for every prion disease, CJD, FFI, GSS. It's all the same PRNP gene. It's all, yeah, exactly. It's all the same PRNP gene. So you want to know if the mutations that are in someone's family are associated with GSS, which is really slow compared to CJD, which is pretty quick. When you seen slow or quick, like slow or quick progression or like slow or quick when they're going to actually start in the person's lifetime? Uh, that's a good question. Both. Both. Uh, I meant progression. So CJD is a pretty quick progression mm-hmm. around 12 months after diagnosis compared to GSS, which can be two to 10 years. So massively different time scale, all things considered. But some of these conditions can start younger. You know, some of these genetic prion diseases can start affecting people in their 
in their late teens and early 20s, but I also have worked with patients who are in their late 80s and were still living independent, normal lives, even though they'd have a pre-mutation that's been with them since the day they were born. They just never develop symptoms. Got you. That, I think that's an important caveat that I should have mentioned is, you know, with genetics and genetic testing, it's important to talk with genetic counselors, talk with physicians. And it is important to note that these are predispositions. It's not a guarantee. Yeah, exactly. And I know there's another episode of the, uh, the Medicus podcast that you hosted with a genetic counselor that was really important because genetic counseling is something that we had to do with every single family that we worked with when I was at UC San Francisco. And I think that has to be the, the hardest part of coming from a family with a terminal genetic illness. You know, the first big decision to make is actually, do you want to get tested to see if you have the mutation? And if that's something that you want to do, you should only do that if you speak to a genetic counselor first. And there's so much that goes into that decision, I, I don't want to get into it right now. But assuming you do get tested and you do carry the mutation for prion disease, then you need to understand, you know, what the odds are that you're going to develop symptoms of the disease. And that's where you'd want to work with a specialist team like the one that I was working on or with any of the other um, researchers, like I said, at Case Western, for example, or in other countries who have their own prion experts. The other thing is, if you have one of these mutations, but you haven't started a family, would you? Would you want to do in vitro fertilization and pre-implantation genetic testing on your embryos to ensure that your children don't have the mutation? And if you don't want to start a family, well, how do you want to live your life? You know, I worked with someone who knew they had one of these mutations, and they spent the last 30 years saving up money with their spouse to build a dream house and retire early. And this dream house was designed with the idea that everything was going to be wheelchair accessible and that there were going to be quarters for a live-in nurse to stay in the home and care for this person if and when they develop symptoms. Now, this is an extreme example, I, I admit, but it highlights how someone can really take control over, over these diseases, even the, the genetic forms of the diseases, and live their lives on their own terms. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for that. Prion diseases are really rare, as you've mentioned. Why do you think they're important to discuss? Uh, thankfully, prion diseases are very rare, and I wish, I wish they were rarer. It's important to discuss them because there are deadly consequences if we don't. You know, for example, farmers and politicians need to be continually reminded and educated of the importance of the policies designed to prevent another outbreak of mad cow disease. That requires continual funding in every part of the world that raises livestock for human consumptions. Similarly, the medical community needs to understand prion transmission and prion contamination so that contaminated surgical equipment or transplant tissue is, uh, is not taken from one patient and given to another. That would erode the public's trust in the medical field, and the public needs to know that medical providers are, are looking out for their well-being at every single opportunity. Do you think that working with prion disease patients has prepared you to be a physician? Why or why not? I do think that working with uh, prion disease patients prepared me to be a physician, and specifically a neurologist. Of course, there is a professional network and job skills that I developed while working as a clinical research coordinator, but I believe the fact that I was studying prions is more important for my career development. Working with prions demands exceptional discipline because of the deadly consequences we've talked about, 
and it demands exceptional compassion because every patient and every family, they're facing the toughest challenge of their entire lives. Beyond that, I needed to develop a really broad knowledge of uh, neurology and genetics and public health and palliative care and uh, infection control and drug development. And I also needed to develop a really specific knowledge of every prion disease so that I can share this information with uh, interested people like those listening to this podcast right now. And you have definitely done it. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming on today. I was very happy to do it, Jackie. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to MedicusPodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.